Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. All right, this week is huge, huge. What an honor. We get to talk to Phil Manzanera, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame guitarist for Roxy Music. Now, I don't know about you, but I think Roxy are one of the most important genre-bending, revolutionary, culture-creating bands in rock history. I mean, most artists who discovered them in real time would tell you that. And so we get into in here, really the, all of it. I mean, the transformation of their sound, how they, how they wrote their songs, the creative process, how Phil was involved, all that kind of stuff. What's interesting about this is that we've been talking about doing this for most of the year. And when I contacted him, he said, great, yes, let's do it. But let's do it in about a month or two. And I didn't know why. And it was because in the meantime, they were going to be announcing that they're going to be getting their back together for some 50th anniversary shows this fall. And so we had way more stuff to talk about in here than I thought. Um, the other cool thing is that he was featured on Tim Finn's Forensics album that came out earlier this year. I'm a big fan of that one, as you know. In fact, I should apologize now. I screw up in here a little bit. I got confused. He's working on new music with Tim. And in fact, they have a new album coming out on the 29th of July called Ghosts of Santiago. When he's telling me about this, I kind of conflate the albums they make, the two of them, and the albums that Forensics make, which is Tim and Eddie, but features Phil. So I mix the two together kind of in my mind. It gets a little confusing. But the bottom line is at the end of this month, Another album by Tim and Phil will be out. We play a couple of songs from it in here. But otherwise, we talk about, I mean, it's all of it. Working with working with Pink Floyd, how that ever happened, the post-Roxy career, producing people, all of it. Phil is one of the greats. This band is one of the greats. I think you'll love it. He called me from his home in West Sussex, I believe, in the UK. It's, uh, it's interesting, Phil, because when I first contacted you and we started emailing a couple of months ago, the idea was to talk about the new forensics album that you had worked on with Tim Finn and the cop by the heart and all that kind of stuff, which I just am loving. And some pretty big news broke in between then and now about Roxy getting back together for a 50th anniversary. I'm just curious what goes into making that decision is everyone kind of waiting to see what brian wants to do is this a group decision how does it happen well you're absolutely absolutely correct i knew this was happening so i thought let's wait a little bit <laughs> oh bless your heart i love it <laughs> and and also quite frankly literally yesterday we finished the new uh tim Finn film as which is coming out at the end of july yeah absolutely so uh you know, I knew I'd have more stuff to talk to you about. I so I it. thought, yeah, let's let's do that. But yeah, so, you know, during a lockdown, I've been, I'm here in the country. By coincidence, Brian Ferry, his, uh, he has a house near me here, about 15 minutes away. And, you know, over the lockdown period, he's been there every now and again. He, he occasionally ring me up and say, fancy coming over having a chat, you know, or playing on stuff, you know, and I do it all here in this room, as I did the Finn Manzanera album, everything. Mm -hmm. I've, I've got a very simple setup. I've got one cheap microphone. I've got a little Fender amp, but a lovely one that 
Mr. Gilmore gave me for my 60th birthday. Ooh. One, get, uh, my guitars, uh, my classic Firebirds and Telegram, and uh, a little machine called an ox, and everything is done that way. So, you know, with Brian, I said, sure, send me stuff, and uh, I'll put stuff on and send it back to you. And if you don't like it, just rub it out. Mm. And um, so I think he pretty much rubbed out all the stuff that I said <laughs> over there. I think I played on about 12 of his tracks, but, I, I, but I, I'm not um, – I recycle everything, so nothing is ever wasted. So, But anyway, we have a bit of a laugh there. And then, you know, just before Christmas, uh, 21, 22, he said, oh, do you fancy doing some gigs? Because I've got, they, I've got this, um, an agent in America. He said, you know, how about doing some rock singing? It is our 50th anniversary. I said, well, if you want to do it, I'm always up mm -hmm. for playing. So let's ask the others and, um, you know, take it from there. So suddenly it'll happen. You know, we, in to certain respect, you know, we have been a hopeless band in the sense that we have no, uh, we don't have a manager, although we have a temporary manager for this mm. tour now, but uh, uh, Wendy Leister, who manages Duran Duran, who we've known for donkey's years. But normally we don't have a manager. We There's no career. You know, it's just like we just get on, follow our noses. And then nothing to stop us getting back. You just have to make some calls to each mm -hmm. other. Fancy doing it? Nah. Oh, fancy doing it? Yeah, okay. And <laughs> depending on where we are in our life cycles, uh -huh. you know, and th that's sort of the great thing about Roxy is that right from the beginning, yeah, there was a Roxy music band, but the, everyone started doing solo projects, really, from the get-go. I mm -hmm. mean... You know, so we, you know, it's 50 years of, yeah. of music. Yeah. I can't yeah. believe that I'm saying crazy. that. You know, it's crazy. But we've all, we're all still doing solo project things. But what was nice was to, um, the thought of celebrating, you know, uh, the Roxy music, you know, because we, we, we stopped our album number eight, the yeah. Avalon. So the thought of actually, going to play some of those songs from the whole catalogue, you know, you think to yourself, well, if we don't do it, who the hell's going to play these songs? And nobody, you know, so it's nice to give them an airing. And um, it's very enjoyable coming back to some of them and, and relearning them. Really? You know, and, uh, yeah. So um, it's going to be great fun. And, you know, you know, when we started, it was all about, fun and having a great time and i think this celebration will be a bit like that you know there's no new material you know no one has to worry that we're <laughs> going to play the, the material in such a strange fashion that they won't recognize the songs uh -huh. they the whole point is yeah you know, me as a punter I, i'm you know i feel a bit bad saying this but if i go to see a band i want to hear it don't like we all it on the no bathroom breaks <laughs> yeah, I don't. I, I don't want um, you know, a new yeah. solo in, a, yeah. you know, if it was um, a hard day's night or something. Yeah. I want to hear a hard day's night played right. exactly as it was, because music is about resonance and about connecting with when you heard it, and where you heard it, and you know, a bit of nostalgia. But it, it really is 
the fabric of our lives. Totally. For me, music. Totally. So, you know, um, yeah. obviously, you know, what can I say? You know, if Dylan plays Don't Think Twice, It's All Right, and you only recognize it when he actually says the words, Don't Think Twice, It's All Right. So, oh, that was, it's slightly unsatisfying. I can understand it from his point of view. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, I have played with Bob Dylan. So, I mean, have you really? <laughs> so, yeah, I did a, a thing, and and it's it's tricky. But he is Bob Dylan. Hey, yes, he can whatever. whatever he yes, right. Whatever. I, I bow to his. That's true. Yeah. I saw Bob but, in concert uh, once, and I and that exact thing happened. I couldn't. I didn't recognize whatever the song was, and then he got to the chorus, and he kind of sped through. How does it feel? I was like, oh, yeah. this is like a Rolling Stone. I hadn't picked up on that yet. You know, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. Anyway, we, we won't go down that rabbit hole. But for Roxy, <laughs> it's going to be you know we're trying very hard to recreate the, the sounds that we had on the original recordings. And when you think about it, you spend months refining uh, what you're going to play with the producer or, mm. or or whatever, and making sure that everything locks together. So you don't want any sort of extra frilly bits that would get in the way you know yeah yeah so you know so and anyway so it, so far <laughs> it's been it's very enjoyable you know yeah are you guys in rehearsals now do you get do you meet up and play in a warehouse or do you just do you know what you're doing and you show up in time to start the tour oh no you know we we, we have to do put in the yards you know okay. so okay. we got together last week and sat down <laughs> with our instruments you know without a lot of noise and and talks through okay you know should we try this one you know and because all together maybe there's 80 tracks so you know you can only do you know about 15 before people lose the will to live you know sure. um at, at a show <laughs> 90 minutes or so we got to you know go through them and and see which ones were and which ones people want to hear yeah yeah. As well, okay. because you know, each of us has a particular obscure song that you want to do and say, nah. Ooh, interesting. So, mm-hmm. Phil, what would be your ex- uh, obscure song that you'd love to sh- shoehorn in there, whether you play it or not? Amazona. Of course. <laughs> I wondered if that's what you were going to say. It's, yeah. It's got my riff in it. We have played it, I think, in 2011 somewhere in Australia or something. We played it a few times. Okay. I mean, 
it's it's fine. It's not. It doesn't play. Some songs record well and sound good on record, and don't just don't cut it live for some reason. Yeah. And um, I find that songs that have music that sort of tells a story in a funny way because of the arrangement and stuff work better uh, than others. Interesting. But anyway, you know, okay. yeah, we all have, you know, Brian has some favorite ones from Avalon and, and they appear on the set list every time we rehearse. And I say, oh, that's appeared again. That never passes, passes the test in the end. But hey, it's there. In fact, now I said, I'm not going to bother to learn that because it'll never It'll come off the list. It'll go onto the B list. Oh, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> now, so the, the tour, I think, is about 12 stops in the States and then, you know, a bunch yeah. more throughout the world. Is there, would, is there, is this the kind of thing where you guys would be talked into making it last another year or two, like a Kiss farewell tour? Or is this going to be well, like, short and sweet? Like Elton John, you mean? Yes, <laughs> exactly. Years. Like Elton John, yes. Elton. Uh, never a big farewell tour. On his farewell tour. It is very enjoyable. You know, we're just saying, look, let's, we're doing 10 in America, three in England. Okay. At the moment, that's it. Okay. But, you know, we've got to see how it goes, whether we enjoy it, whether we do a good job, you know, and if it's really rocking and everyone says it's great and everything, then... I personally would like to do some more, but hey, let, sure. let's just take it small steps. And because of COVID and all this stuff, it's not easy for bands to get up and running. Mm-hmm. So we've got to just take what we can at the moment and see what yeah. happens. Okay. I was curious about that. I wanted to ask you, you mentioned the Avalon period, and that's, for a lot of people, that's kind of a golden age of Roxy Music and a hell of a way to go out. But by that point, the sound had kind of evolved so much from this quirky, weird, but wonderful band that was doing strange things at the beginning to a very smooth, polished, almost disco-influenced thing. Are you aware of this evolution? When I listen to things like uh, Same Old Scene, which might be my favorite Roxy song, I'm hearing the disco that you guys are in, you know, absorbing at Studio 54, working its way into Roxy's sound. Is that kind of true of what was going on at at that era? Let me tell you a funny story. We went to New York to re- when we, we had a f- five years and then Brian went off uh, to do solo stuff and I did stuff with Eno and blah. Then we sort of got back together after a couple of years 
And we went to New York to start recording the album Manifesto. And we're in Atlantic Studios. And it was at the time when the Bee Gees were hitting it big and Saturday Night Fever and all this stuff. And, you know, there was a certain element of we're not fucking doing disco. We're not, you know, fuck that. You know, yeah, I love dancing to disco, but we're not doing it. When we get back together, we're going to be wild and wacky. Uh-huh. So we're in Atlantic Studios and and Brian had been working on this track before we got together called Dance Away. Yesterday Well it seems so cool When I walked you home Kissed goodnight I said it's love You said alright It's fun I could never cry until tonight and you pass by. So we're in Atlantic Studios, and every evening, uh, well, not every evening, quite a few evenings, at about 11 o'clock or half past 11 at night, Armit Erskine would come in, having been out on the town partying and stuff in his dinner jacket and stuff, and have a listen. And he'd say, that's great, that song, but these fours on the bass drum. And, and you know, so, um, we sort of like nod. And then he goes out and said, we're not fucking putting fours on the bass drum. That's disco. We're not fucking doing disco. You can scream at So anyway, he's, he's banging on about this. So he, he goes, and, and we do not take any notice of that, you know, in the end. So we do our nice little dance work. And then we're cutting the disc, literally mastering it in London, in Victoria, in a, a, at a, and... Look at me, who walks in? Armit Erskine. And he says, where are the fours on the bass drum? And we go, oh, okay, we've got fours on the body bass drum. Well, because of that, it became a hit in England. And we brought out one single, which wasn't a hit, called Trash. We thought, well, we're screwed.
We're never going to be able to take off again. Suddenly, Dance Week comes out. It's number two in the charts. It was a big hit. <laughs> and then we redo one of the tracks in a sort of disco style called Angel Eyes. And that yeah. becomes a hit with beats on it. You know, he was totally right. And we were just being like silly, really. But yeah, I guess that influence, well, not only that influence, but the next two albums, Flesh and Blood and Avalon, a different way of working. Technology was changing. I had a recording studio that we could experiment and use the studio as an instrument. We started uh, tri- what they call triggering things. Uh, through uh, these uh, noise gate units and creating, for instance, on same old scene, that is a, a, a keyboard pad, but it's going through this thing, this trig- triggering thing called a scamper, and then I do an echo thing to it, and it evolves into a sort of a late 70s kind of track, which then eventually, uh, by the time we get to Avalon, it's really almost like a Brian solo album, really. Mm. You know, I, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I read recently in um, a Rolling Stone review of it that um, Phil Manzanero <laughs> criminally underused <laughs> in his True. guitar. And, yeah. and, I, and I thought, well, yeah, you're absolutely right. And that's why I did a, like, off-the-wall instrumental wacky album called Primitive Guitars which came out exactly the same time yes, as Avalon, in the same Rolling Stone review, <laughs> saying, oh, that's more like it. That's <laughs> crazy but you're right. absolutely right. And, and by then, you know, Brian had, you know, had almost become like his own ambient type of yeah. music artist. Yeah. You know, he, he had this thing, you know, and it produced, you know, a couple of, tracks that are very popular now. Yeah. Like more than this, I guess because it was also in the film, Sleepers and Seattle, is our top like listen to track in yeah. America.
Yeah, it probably is. That's still get. I would say that's almost more beloved now than it was then. It's one of those songs that pops up somewhere, and you know, it melts everyone's heart, and they love it. Yeah, and and, and you know, we're trying to. Funny enough, we were trying to like talk about that the other day, and I said, "Why is that so popular?" You know, where and, and I said, "Well, I think it's actually funny enough. It's the words. They're very simple, but they get to people." Mm-hmm. You know, about it's quite a, a profound thought, really, on, on one level. It's like yeah. more than this. And I know there's nothing. Is there more to life? Yeah. You know, so it's very wistful and, and it seems to have resonance. Yeah, it does. For lots of different reasons, you know. The song, uh, I, I love that song. I also love Space Between. Again, going back to it, it sounds like I sort of put space between and same old scene in a similar box and that they feel to me like grooves, like the band's kind of jamming or noodling on something and they find a groove and it feels good and they let it ride for a while. And then yeah. that they turn that into a song. Is that where something like space between might've come from? Yeah, absolutely. hundred <clears throat> percent. But you see, you've got to remember that pretty much, all of Roxy from the second album onwards was done in a different way from a songwriting point of view. And it's not that it was done intentionally, it's just that none of us could write a song. <laughs> they could do music and then try and write a top line later, <clears throat> which, you know, which is interesting if we're talking about, you know, Tim Finn, for instance. Right. Tim is you know, a proper sort of songwriter who will write in the conventional way like Paul McCartney and like his brother Neil and so, you know. However, on the albums that 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 I, um, that we've done, the, the previous one and this one that's coming out, he's had to work in a totally different way. I've sent him the music and he's worked like Brian used to work. And he's really? come up with the top, top lines and some lyrical idea. And it's made me realise that what I do best is create musical texture, create some sort of musical world for a singer-songwriter to Interesting. inhabit yeah. and through the use of constructing the words. So when you get, you know, um, uh, on, with Roxy, you get Do the Strand or things like that. We'd recorded all the music mm. or Brian even mentioned the word Do the Strand. or Okay. Or, you know, 
tables Quack tables, place on Mabel's Slow and gentle Sentimental All style served here Louis says he Tired of the tango Fed up with Pandango And so when you get to the at the end, Avalon or Space Between again, all the music done. Nobody I mean if Brian had an idea what it was gonna be, he didn't say so he didn't tell mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. Um or had an idea for anything, you know, he would take the music and then sweat it out yeah. of like trying to come up with some idea or something. So that's why a lot of the Roxy music is quite unique because it's not done in a conventional way. Our method of working <clears throat> was different. Got it. And so, you know, that method of working has a sort of 60, 40, 70, 30 success rate. Mm -hmm. So you will get some duff tracks, but you will get occasionally get a brilliant track. Most most yeah. of them brilliant, yeah. Um, um, it's interesting. In getting, fact, oh, go ahead, please. Oh, well, I was just going to say, yesterday a thing popped up because The weekend got an award, songwriting award, award, and he referenced Roxy as being very influential and particularly really? the track more than this. <laughs> I thought... I've heard it all now. You know, it's like I've heard different bands re re reference us over the years, but The weekend, wow. And wow. he was saying, you know, he goes on to explain why. I've forgotten already what, uh -huh. what he said. But, but you know, the strangest things that people take from different yeah. kinds of music is, is very it's fascinating. That is amazing. You know, when I was getting ready to talk, I... I, as I often do, I went back and listened to every Roxy Music album. And, of course, knowing that I'm talking to you, I'm listening specifically for guitar tones and riffs and stuff like that. And something that struck me is that um, I feel like the guitar in Roxy was more of an accent than a featured, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, instrument like it would be in some other rock band. And I wondered, when I was listening to Diamond Head, your solo album, East of Echo... Well, the whole album, but East of Echo specifically, I'm just, it's such a charge of like electric guitar, you know, working out workouts. It's like, it feels like an explosion.
Like Phil has been in this great band, kind of hemmed in a little bit, and I have some guitarness I have to get off my chest, and I'm going to do yeah. it on a song like East of Echo. Am I on? Is that sort of what's going on there? I'm guessing that's why the solo albums are what they are. It's a chance for you to to get all that stuff off your chest. Hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, I think you know when you're in a band, you're sort of serving the song. Mm. So it's no use putting up something like ridiculous over the top of the, the lyrics. Because people want to hear the lyrics, yeah. You know, obviously, when you're dealing with instrumental music, it's, it's different. And when you, and when you're a guitarist, you always want to rock out and you know and give it some welly and all that kind of thing. But it's <laughs> it's not always possible. <laughs> and also, you know, we had a fantastic producer from the second album on, Chris Thomas, who had been George Martin's assistant. And we uh, were the beneficiaries of the legacy of the Beatles and George Martin's production uh, ideas in Abbey Road, you know, and it's how to play parts to serve the song. And, you know, and if you listen to those Beatles records, every single part and that George Harrison plays is perfect. It yes. fits it like a glove and it's beautifully simple and it's just got a great great sound and so that ethos came into our recordings with chris thomas teaching us how to hey guys you know if you do that it's gonna uh, blur over that other part yeah. and let you know and it's almost like a jazz thing you you have to listen to what the other people are playing and interface with them so that's just craftsmanship and but you know what but then there's occasional bits where you can let rip, like for me at the end of In Every Dream, Home of Heartache or yes. Lady John. Yes. And things like that. And, and it's pretty much the same as that when we when we play, when we're going to play live now. There'll be okay. bits where I can rock out. and But most of the time, you know, you're serving the song and people don't want to hear Love is a Drug with a great big guitar, heavy guitar solo. Mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. True. Speaking of it's, when you were talking earlier about we create the music and then Brian goes away and comes up with the lyrics later, Every Dream Home is the first song that came to mind because I'm imagining a band putting this really intricate thing together and then suddenly it's a song about, you know, sex with an inflatable doll or whatever. And every step I take takes me further from heaven. Is there a heaven? I'd like to think so. Standards of living, they're rising daily. But home, oh sweet home, it's only a saying. From bell push to faucet In smart town apartment The cottage is pretty The main house a palace Penthouse perfection But what goes on 
I'm imagining what the rest of the, if that's how this happens and Brian goes off by himself, I'm wondering what the rest of the rest of the band is thinking when it's like, I ha- I, ha- I wasn't thinking of, you know, a, a sex doll when I wrote that riff or whatever on that song. Well, the, the funny thing is that you're right. There's a long droney bit at the uh-huh. beginning. Of, and you've got to remember that I'm just a complete Velvet Underground fan. So mm. to me, I was just imagining in my bubble coming out of my head, I'm in the Velvet Underground, but, you know, obviously we're in England, we're in London. <laughs> right. And I'm just playing a drone thing as if John Cale and Sterling Morris and everything, you know, and, and there's Nico singing on top, you know. Uh, so I love the textural thing. But, yeah, what was really funny is that when we played that live in the UK, that you'd see, you'd be on stage and you'd see this inflatable doll being passed over <laughs> from the back of the audience coming across <laughs> towards the stage during the whole of that thing. It was just hilarious. <laughs> That's so good. I love that. I love it. Yeah, okay. not, not, nothing, it wasn't something that we did. It was some punter right. in the audience. Of course, so of course. That's genius. Good for them. <laughs> good for them. Okay, I wanted to ask you about your look because obviously Roxy has a very specific look, that glam look. You got you guys and Bowie and Mark Boland and everyone created it. But you with your long hair and beard, I always felt like looked like you belonged in Leonard Skinner or something like that. <clears throat> and I yes. wondered if I what it it didn't, you know, Brian looks great in the in the and and Brian Eno looks great in the feathers and the glam and all that stuff it always looked a little like you were i don't know like it wasn't the perfect fit for you well no i mean i was the token hippie you know do not cut your hair me and paul thompson we had long hair i said you guys are not going to cut your hair and you're not going to color up your hair i said can i color up my beard yeah sure so i used to put blue you know but no it's sort of like one foot in each camp. You see, uh-huh. well, we're going to have two long hairs because remember, you're coming at the beginning, at the end of the sort of prog rock period oh. and Zeppelin and, and all those sort of Deep Purple and all those bands. And so this was the halfway period. You couldn't, you know, you guys are not going to cut you. <laughs> You've got to think of something different, you know. And yeah. uh, so, uh, you know, the, when it came to creating the outfits, you know, we didn't talk to each other at all about what we were going to wear. Really? We never did. We never talked. We just went to our friends and said, can you make me something? Uh, I've got this idea. I want to be be like a sort of armadillo outfit (laughs) made out of kitchen fabric. And she would make it for me. The first time any of them saw, we saw any of our stuff was when, just before going on stage on the beginning of uh, the tour. And we'd say, right, we'd turn up with the outfits in bags, uh-huh. you know, and they say to me, you know, okay, what are you wearing? He said, no, what are you wearing? <laughs> I said, no, you show me your, I think I'll show you mine. I mean, this is really what went on. I said, okay, <laughs> you know, we're coming this. <laughs> oh my god that's like ridiculously amazing okay that's like stupid what's your one armadillo out <laughs> I, I, I can't where the hell did that come from you know 
And we had friends, young friends who were fashion designers and just starting out. And they, they were up for doing like wacky, crazy. Sure. There was no styling that we did not. We There was no like there would be now a stylist. Uh-huh. All wear jackets. I mean, later at the beginning of the end, 79 or something. Yeah, we did. Or, or no, actually from Manifesto onwards. Obviously, we'd, we'd, we'd done all that sort of yeah. dressing up bit. And so we knew we had to change every time. Uh-huh. So it's something different. Yeah, and actually, I think halfway through between, I think, yeah, after, well, Brian, certainly after the uh, starting with Stranded, completely changed. He started wearing a dinner jacket, mm-hmm. which completely threw everybody. <laughs> the, you know, the audience was so, what? <laughs> He's wearing a white tuxedo. What? Right. Frank Sinatra, you know, like, what is going on here? Is this some iron, ironic sort of play on right. whatever? <laughs> right. You know, it was like, yeah, it was this desire, which, same with the music, is that we wanted to do something different every time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even Makes if it sense. killed us, we would do something <laughs> different. Yes. Okay, speaking of doing something different then, what... What was now? I personally uh, don't feel any kind of dip or change in quality after Eno leaves after the second album. What What were you guys feeling? Was there something when you listen back to that music and you remember making it and recording it? Is there something that you are aware that is missing or isn't there anymore that he took with him? The music changes, but it doesn't get any, and it, it stays awesome the whole time. Yeah, it, it changes, and obviously we were worried. I was worried, you know. It, it wasn't my decision or anything, and I continued working with Brian, you know, mm-hmm. in parallel for the next four or five years. You yeah. know? But, you know, the terms, there wasn't room for two Brians, really. Mm-hmm. And But, but you know, always said that he was an independent mobile unit. True. He, he really wasn't... Uh, built to be in a band you know quite quite rightly he followed his uh his uh what he was into mm-hmm. and yeah it, so we came to this point where we thought do we split the band up or do we try and stay together and ch- make some changes mm-hmm. so luckily you know me and andy are very pragmatic uh, you know we we thought you know what I think let's start integrating our music written by me and Andy into this. You know, we've got to change anyway. We can't just do the same album again. Third album is always difficult for everybody. Well, quite frankly, second album, third album, always difficult for people. So, and because we had Eddie Jobson join, who was a young, at the time, very young, sort of 19-year-old prodigy, really, technically, Totally the opposite to Eno. Thought, so, oh, okay. Well, now we could actually do a few intricate piano bits with him, which we did on Song for Europe, and, mm-hmm. and have Andy's classical training come in. And then what evolved was uh, Stranded, the album Stranded, which perversely Eno says is his favourite Roxy album. <laughs> now. <laughs> Whether that's because he he left and he didn't have to put up with with all the shit, or he genuinely yeah. likes it, I haven't actually uh, nailed him down on that. Okay, <laughs> he has 
he has perversely, in a very Eno fashion, said that was his favorite <laughs> Roxy album, which wow. is wrong, really, because I wouldn't say that his For Your Pleasure is probably the best one sure. with him on it. But yeah, we, we it changed into something different, but interesting musically uh, and uh, correct for us to change. And that's when, you know, the, the whole look started changing. Yeah. And yeah. You suddenly okay. realized that you had to keep moving. Yeah. You know, yeah. if you wanted to stay vital and challenge yourself and not repeat yourself. Do you, no one likes being asked these questions, but I'm going to do it anyway since it just came up. Do you have a favorite Roxy album? I think mine's Country Life. I, I think mine is For Your Pleasure, actually. Really? Okay. Yeah. You know, it is difficult because I like tracks on a lot of the albums, but mm. as a whole album, you know, I don't know. I was yeah. excited for <laughs> 21, 22. Don't you have a co-write on Out of the Blue? Yeah, yeah, Out of the Blue is one of mine, yeah. Yeah. What? Tell me about the creation of that song, because I love it. You know, you're just sitting at home and just looking out the window and just, you know, just... Going <laughs> looking at you there. do this right now, just so nonchalantly strumming away, looking out well, the window. <laughs> and and, and a, a little sequence appears, and you say, oh, that's nice. Yeah. And then you say, well, if that was that, what else would come after that? You do that. And then, you know, uh, I say to Brian, look, I've got this thing. Uh, what, you know. And uh, he says, okay, well, let's have a go on that. And we do all the music again. You know, and by then we've got Eddie Jobson who said, you know what, it would be perfect at the end for electric yeah. violin solo. I love, you know, uh, now was it It's a Beautiful Day who had the electric violin? I can't remember. But John Ponty with Zappa, you know, mm-hmm. electric violin with echo. Wow. Yes, and we and we've got a guy who can just got the chops. Let's do that. And then, of course, the wonderful Chris Thomas producing and creating the, that phased the phasing on mm-hmm. the acoustic guitars. Mm-hmm. And it turned it's turned out to be a song that we play always play. Really, I wondered about yeah. that. Is that song that, yeah. does that make the set list now? On uh, yeah, the reunion tour. Good. Oh, good. That's yeah. one of my favorites. So, okay. So you talk a second ago about changing and having to evolve. I had never heard the explorers until getting ready to talk to you. And, uh, the song Lorelei, I guess, got some airplay back in the early eighties.
was the idea there to keep trying to do something like Roxy, find a guy who sounds a little bit like Brian, keep the band together and keep do- going and seeing what happens? Funny enough, my first choice for singer was Paul Carrick. I love him. Oh, yeah, good one. Paul had been playing with us in Roxy, you know, and it was such a terrific. And, and, uh, but of course, Mike nabbed him for Mike and the Mechanics. But Brian, um, Andy knew this guy, James, and um, he said, Look, oh, I've got this friend, James. And I had no, I, really stupid, but I hadn't really sort of thought that he sounded like that. <laughs> It was, you know, we had to do something. Brian had gone off to, to be solo and with prospect of never getting back together with Roxy and everything. <clears throat> so sure. we just had a hit album. By then I had a manager who was the manager of the Pink Floyd, Steve O'Rourke. And Steve said, look, do some demos. I'll take them to Virgin. Took them to Virgin. They loved it. He got a big advance. And we ended up just wasting all the money by going and recording in fabulous places in West of Ireland and Barbados, wow. used up all the money, and then it wasn't a hit. So then we gave up. The explorers stopped exploring. You know? <laughs> it was like you come to your, you know, you're up the Amazon without a without right. a paddle, you know. Right. So give up, mate. Yeah. And of okay. course, that finished, and then Tim Finn happened to pop yeah. into London. So boom, I was. Yeah. You know, reconnected with Tim and, and, and you know, Off again. Still going. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah, let's talk about Tim. First of all, I wanted to throw in, I we have some Patreon supporters, and I let them know who I'm talking to, and if they want, they can submit questions. Sure. Okay, first of all, Michael Bagford wants to know the story of co-writing One Slip for with David for Pink Floyd's yeah. Momentary Lapse Reason album. Okay, so I built a recording studio in 1978. It became uh, the Roxy Bass, in fact. Uh, uh, like a lot of Flesh and Blood and Avalon was done then. We'd go to New York and come back, and it was our bass. And other musicians recorded there, Duran Duran, Susan the Banshees, uh, the, the Dire Straits did, uh, you know, preparation for Brothers in Arms there and all things. So it was a, a great studio in an 18th century coach house, all very good. And, um, you know, I've, I've known David since I was 15 or 16, mm-hmm. you know, uh, because he was a friend of my brother's and we went to see him when I was 16 to ask him what you have to do to become a professional musician. Really? At lunch. And he literally had joined Pink Floyd the week before. 
No way. <laughs> and he, um, he says now, he can't remember what he said, but it must have been good because five years later you joined Roxy. So <laughs> whatever I said must have been fantastic. <laughs> and, uh, but it, it was, you know, he left that lunch and went to Abbey Road where the, he was recording Amagam. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it, when I think back on it, it's extraordinary. I met him and I met Robert White when I was 16. And Goodness. if you can meet somebody who's famous or in a well-known band when you're young, you think, oh, maybe I could be in a band. You know, yeah. I, maybe, you know, I've met somebody. It's not like totally yeah. out of reach. So important to have role models, you know. So anyway, getting back to David, they were doing... Uh, Momentary Lapse of Reason uh, album. Obviously, it wasn't called Momentary Lapse of Reason then because one slip has that's where the title comes from. And so, Steve O'Rourke was my manager, uh, if you remember, uh, after uh, the Explorers and all that. Shit. And David lived nearby, and they used to, you know, we stayed in touch socially and stuff. And um, one day, um, Steve said, Look, um, why didn't you just try writing some stuff with David, see what happens, you know? So he came over to the studio and I'd already started a track, which became one slip. Uh, and we worked on three tracks and um, he took them away. And then um, after they'd done most of the recording, they invited me down to the boat where he's got the, the recording, Astoria. And I uh, listened to it and I, and, I thought that he was talking about another track, but th that was the track, <clears throat> one step. Wow. So they changed a few things. They took my guitar off and did it on a sequencer and stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, it became – I was just thrilled, you know, yeah. <clears throat> to have a credit Such on a great song. Program. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> I, I have my original demo still. I was thinking maybe I should put it on a rarities thing. You should. Actually. That would yeah. be fascinating. Let me write that down. <laughs> make a note. Actually, make a note. Um, put it on a sticky I, note where you could see it. Yeah. yeah, you're right. A sticky note. Here we go. Um, put demo. He really is doing it. This is great. One slip. I'll tell you why. Because at the end of the year, I'm bringing out uh, some box sets. Really? Like, well, I went to Universal and said, can I license my first four albums? So they said, why don't we do it all, do it all together? Because it's yeah. 50 years of music. So call it 50 years of music. The 10 solo albums, that's a, a big box CD. And then a 20, <laughs> sounds stupid, a 20 CD box of projects, including <laughs> 801 Live, Quiet Sun, Rarities, yeah. my South American things, blah, blah, blah. So actually, I was thinking, I was compiling a list of what rarities I was going to put on. And actually, that might be good that to would stick be, that on. I think people would be interested. That would be great. Good one. Okay. Um, okay. All right. Also from Sugar Mouse. I don't know who Sugar Mouse is, but he's one of my listeners, and I love that name. So uh, he asks specifically around – he wants to know the story of how Second Thoughts, the second – split ends album that you came in and produced how that all happened i i have a lot of questions about that too i'm a huge i had tim on here well you know i had tim on here a couple of months ago and he's great yeah and he wants to know in particular sugar mouse does the story of the sweet stranger than fiction into time for a change 
Okay, so we went with Roxy. We went to Australia for our first uh, tour of Australia in 1975, I think it was. Okay. And we arrived, it's, uh, in those days, it took forever to get there from England, and you stopped in India and all over the bloody place. It took about 27 hours. <clears throat> we arrive in Sydney, get into the hotel room, shattered, lie on the bed, turn on the television. What should pop up? Split ends playing on TV and, and, and it was their first apparently their first proper TV shows in wow. Australia so I thought wow this is not what I was expecting these guys are like freaky and like they, they look amazing so what's, so I go to the sound our sound check the next day it's a place called the Horden Pavilion and lo and behold they're the support act split ends so I watched them on the side of the stage and I think, God, these guys are, are mad, wacky and, and brilliant. So they come off, they go to the dressing room. I walk past the dressing room. I stick my head through and say, you guys are great. You know, anything I do to help, just let me know. And I continue walking and a little head pops out just as I'm going down the corridor. Will you produce our album? <laughs> so I said, well, yeah, sure, whatever. But, you know, they... I'm in London. You guys are here. Um, they then they do their album, Mental Notes, uh-huh. and then someone has a bright idea. Why don't we go to London and redo it with some extra stuff with Phil? Mm. So they turn up in the UK, um, and uh, we get on doing their album. And funny enough, a few weeks ago, I I well no, actually last year I found. The rehearsal tape that I'd done on a on a cassette player when we were rehearsing for the album. No way. And it sounds absolutely brilliant. I, and I digitized it and sent it to Tim. I said, wow, look what I found. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, Splinter and fans are gonna, you know, mm-hmm. they'd love to hear this yeah. one day. So I think, you know, I'm hoping that that they'll let their fans hear it on that some would be great yes. thing. But it really showed how terrific they were, yeah. because they, they'd also been playing those tracks a, a lot, yeah. And, and so they'd really, they were really together, and the voice sounds amazing. Yeah, Sugar Mouse makes a makes a point here that I hadn't considered, but it's kind of true. That first uh, Split Ends album, Mental Notes, kind of flops. It, it doesn't really do much, but the second one that you produce takes off, and he drew the connection, which I hadn't thought of. But if that second album doesn't take off. The whole, we may never have the entire Finn dynasty, you know, Tim and Neil and Crowded House and more split ends and all the good stuff you guys have done. That may not have happened had you not been able to kind of make them what they became with that second album. Well, no, I mean, they, it was all there. But what happened while they were in the UK was that uh, Phil left. Yeah, true, true. And at the time, Neil was too young to be in the band. But they got in touch with him, got him to come over to the UK. 
Mm-hmm. And to train him up to play with them, you know, he had been used to playing acoustic guitar a lot. So they, they decided they'd send him to me to have a few, get a few tips on playing electric. No when, when he was like 16 or something, which oh. seems like ridiculous now because he's just like incredible. Yes. And, uh, but, you know, th- so that's when I first <laughs> came across him. Wild. And, and, and then punk happened here and, and everything. And it was going very badly for them. They were yeah. like, on the dole, as they say, you know, getting money to live from the government. It was impossible. And actually, I like to think that the session fees that I paid them to sing on my album, Casco, enabled them to buy their tickets to go back. That might be true, uh, yeah. And then the rest is history. Yeah, that's true. That's true. They, you know, started just writing incredible songs, you know. I wanted to ask you about the Caught by the Heart project that you and Tim did a couple of years ago, because I love that album. And I feel like Tim in particular has been on a real winning streak the last few years. Everything he's putting out there is so good and quality. And it's interesting, the Forensics album to me feels very French, has like a French pop influence or feel to it. But the Caught by the Heart, probably thanks to you and your Latin roots, feels very Latino. You know, there's a yeah. there's some beautiful Latin stuff on there. The rippling waters in Havana Bay made us feel happy back in the day. When that project takes off, does one of you say to the other, let's make a let's make a Latin album? Or is that just what happens in the you know course of creativity? No, well, actually, the the the, the way it came about was that you know, Roxy got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. On the same evening, Stevie Nicks was being mm-hmm. inducted. With the, the whole band was there to support her, uh, Fleetwood Mac, including now Neil. Yeah. So reconnected with Neil at the party afterwards, had a picture taken, sent it to Tim, said, look what I bumped into mm-hmm. in New York. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, funny, that, that's great. Um, I, 
I was just wondering if you'd like to put some guitar on this thing that I'm doing with Eddie called the forensic, you know, it wasn't called forensics and, mm-hmm. you know, working on tracks. So I said, sure, just send it, send it to me. I'm here. So this was in March, 2019. So I, I, played on a whole bunch of tracks uh, over the year and they seemed to like it. So that was great. I was very pleased to make contact again um, with Eddie and with Tim. And then uh, when lockdown happened, March 2020, <clears throat> Tim, you know, was sitting at home and, and thought, I've always wanted, I have a hankering to sort of do something la- with the Latin feel. I'll tell you what, I'll get in touch with Phil, <clears throat> see if he's got any Latin grooves we can work. So he sent me an email. And um, it's funny because I've got a screensaver here with a, and it's got an island in the Pacific mm. on it. And out pops an email from a guy on an island in the Pacific. <laughs> <laughs> Have you got any grooves? And I said, I said, you come to the right place, mate, because I was preparing for another sort of Latino type album. I'll send you these tracks and hey, See, if it's any use to you, great. Now, there's a 12-hour difference between London and Auckland. So when he's sleeping, I'm awake. When I'm awake, he's sleeping. So I'd send him a track. I'd wake up the next morning. It would come back with him singing on it with words on it. Mm. I said, okay, this is this worked a few times. He'll never do it more than that. Right. Send him another one. Comes back the next morning. So, oh, come on, you're taking the piss. Wow. 25 times. No. Absolutely. So that's why we we have done 25 tracks. We so we can't put out a wanga. People just like lose the will to live. <laughs> 10 tracks. Make it short. One year. So 10 tracks this year. 10 uh-huh. tracks coming out at the end of July. Totally different. And you know, some of them had Latino things, some of them ex- had a resonance for me because it sort of explored my growing up in Cuba sure. and South America. And um, on this new one, there's one about the carnival in Barranquilla, where my mother was born in Barranquilla. It, you know, and Tim has an incredible ability to sort of, A, to write beautifully crafted words and interesting stories, like a storyteller, you know. And, you know, well, both of them, you know, I think I, I put it down to their Irish gene mm. they have. They have this ability, great ability to songwrite and obviously yeah. beautiful voices. So, you know, it's just, just been a pure joy. That's amazing. So a yeah. new forensics album. I have the other one. I'm still absorbing. It's sitting right here. Um, because it's one of my favorite albums of the year, and already part two is on its way. That's crazy. I mean, Tim is incredibly prolific. You know, I wondered if he he's like got a book full of lyrics that he's written like that thick. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he'll just say, oh, that, Phil sent me that, so hmm, that will work with that. And then Eddie sent me that, so yeah. that I mean... <laughs> I, I'm in awe. You know, I have yeah. worked with a few great artists and musicians and things, but you have. <laughs> he takes the biscuit, you know. Yeah, I mean, he's great. <laughs> okay, let me, look, let me look at this real quick. Uh, another question came in, and it's a long paragraph. I don't want to read the whole thing, but I want to make sure I get the right question out of here. Let me see. Um, 
Well, okay. So first and foremost, this is an this is a obvious but necessary question. Philip Hopwood wants to know. Roxy Music has come back together over the years, but why not record another album? Why leave it with Avalon 40 <clears throat> years ago? Well, to tell you the truth, in 2015, we went in the studio mm. with Eno and with Chris Thomas oh. and recorded a whole bunch of tracks. What? But we then, I mean, they're on my laptop. They're inside this computer. <clears throat> then we listened to it and thought, is this good enough? And then we said, no, mm. it's not. Okay. <laughs> so <clears throat> I think people would rather not hear mm. substandard stuff as opposed to, I mean, a couple of the tracks and a couple of things that I co-wrote with Brian have appeared on his solo album mm -hmm. that have gone by. Mm -hmm. And there's another one from that session which might appear on, a new solo album of this, I don't know. Okay. But doing a Roxy thing, you know, it's like gambling. Mm. You know, the last one was a huge hit. Do you put your chips, you know, on the roulette yeah. table? Yeah. And then you lose everything. Yeah. And so I think, you know, also it was very much, if we felt like doing it really, we would, we're just happy doing our own adventures mm -hmm. with all these other people mm -hmm. and just, you know, keeping it simple yeah. and being happy. I hadn't thought about that. You're right. There's such a high mark, watermark for quality on those Roxy albums. If you put something out just to put it out and it's not as good, then there's some of the legacy that gets sullied in the, in the process. It's not working. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. One other thing I wanted to read a story to you real quick. So one of a uh, former guest of ours is a guy is a guy named Fred Pinot, who's the guitarist for a band called the Atlantics that yeah. opened for Roxy Music, probably mm -hmm. around 79, 80. He tells a story. I don't know if you'll remember this. If it's if it doesn't mean anything, we'll cut it out. Um, okay, here, let me see here. Uh, he doesn't remember what town. He says, I arrived at the venue for sound check. I can't remember where. And Phil told me that during the load-in, the setup, a roadie saw a stranger who came in through the load-in doors, grab a Les Paul that was on a stand and take off running out the door. So the roadie chases after this guy, finally catches up with him. And just before he catches up with him, the guy who stole the guitar throws the guitar off on the road and the and it cracks. Uh, let me see. So Phil was upset because he said that he had borrowed it from Lowell Cream of 10CC for the tour. And he said, of course, now I have to go, I have to get the guitar repaired and I have to tell Lowell what happened to it. Does any of this make ring a bell to you? This is totally true, <clears throat> but <laughs> slightly different, sorry, because we'd finished the gig, the set, <clears throat> the very low stage. It's so very easy for the audience to walk up. <clears throat> yeah, and a guy came on stage, took the guitar, ran off with it, hotly pursued by the roadies. Yes. Give me that fucking guitar. <laughs> <clears throat> Snapped. Next day, we were due to play at the Palladium in New York, and Bowie was coming. Oh. So, no, no, and I thought that guitar. Sounds fantastic. Oh, I, you know, I, I've got to do a, a good job because David's going to be on the side of the stage, you know. <laughs> they took it to 42nd Street or whatever it is, mm -hmm. uh, Manny's or somewhere. 
they stuck it together with superglue. I played it that night. It was absolutely fine. And you're totally right. I had to ring Lol and say, I've got some good, good news. There's some good news and some bad news. <clears throat> he said, what's the good news? Oh, no, sorry, there's no good news. There's just bad news. Because that guitar was a Paul Kossoff guitar from oh, Free. Oh, really? <clears throat> a beautiful, I, I've got a picture of it, um, which I found recently. A beautiful guitar. Those guitars play themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know, uh, a fifty late fifties, fifty six, fifty seven Les Pauls. You just play one note; it sounds like the best thing in the world. They're, they're the most beautiful. They're like Stradivarius sort of equivalents for guitarists. So it was uh, tragic, and having to ring Lol and tell him that was even more tragic. <laughs> but luckily, you know, I don't know what's happened to him. Maybe, maybe okay, he didn't okay. Tell anyone, but, but it worked <laughs> out. Okay. Yeah. Um, good. That's a great story. Last, last little bit. I, yeah. it occurred to me getting ready to talk to you when I first, I'd always heard of Rocky, Roxy music and I knew a couple of songs here and there, but what really, uh, got me to pay attention and know some of the songs was the velvet gold mine soundtrack. Does yeah. that ring a bell? <laughs> okay. So this, this Bowie sort of movie comes out in the late nineties with a soundtrack that's made up of super groups doing a lot of your music. That's when I started to realize how great Roxy music was. Were you involved in that project at all? Well, only the, 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 the track that I co-wrote with Eno needles in the camel's eye. Ah, sure, sure, sure. Yes. It was, I think it's the opening track on, on the yes. credit. can't remember whether that was just our original track or whether someone else did it yeah i think andy was involved with i mean people i'm sure people like tom york and people tom like york's him, in there yeah and all sorts of people placebo guy and um, brian molko i think mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I i'd have to google it to see whether okay. the actual needles in the camel's eye <clears throat> which was written in my mum's home on, a, on an old 10 pounds piano we just wrote it. It became the first track on his album. Yeah, his solo album. His first yes, kick on the wrong jets. Yeah. Classic. That and Tiger Mountain. I think you're on both of those. Yeah. Well, um, look, uh, Phil, I mean, I I love you so much. I love everything you do so much. Thank you for talking with me. You're a legend. And I you're cannot wait to hear the forensics album because everything you guys have been doing lately is fantastic. Fantastic. Great. Thank you. 
Well, actually, the, 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 um, our Finn Manzanero album is called The Ghost of Santiago. Ooh. So, okay, so there's a forensics album coming out and a Manzera Finn album coming out. The, the Finn Manzanera album will come out before. Really? It's finished. It finished two days ago, and it's going to be released on the 29th of July. Oh, fantastic. So, um, yeah, it's, Great. it's all done. And it's, uh, wow. Great. Yeah, it's oh, different. It's great. I love everything you do, Phil. Thank you. Thanks for talking with me. All right, there you have it. Phil Manzanera. That, I mean, talk about honors. It is incredible, you guys. We get to hear from Phil and people like Phil. It's just mind-blowing to me how great music can be and how great these characters within music are and that they share their time with us to tell these fantastic stories. We are so lucky and blessed. Now, I want to close it out with another song. This is another single off of the new Tim and Phil album. The song is called Our Love. And again, that album comes out on the 29th. I cannot wait to hear it because I love the last album they did, Caught by the Heart. Loved it. Now, uh, check out the Roxy Music website or anything to see if they're coming near you. They're not coming near me. I wish they were. I might have to travel for this. I've heard the tickets are really expensive. Of course they are. These are like historic moments. So anyway, good luck finding something. Let me know if you do because I love these guys. I'd give anything to see them. Now, next week, I had thought we were going to be running one of the most important new wave artists this week. We didn't. We're run, Next week is a twofer, and we're doing, again, one half of one of the greatest synth-pop new wave duos in history, as well as a fantastic singer-songwriter that I think most of you will know. So it's a twofer next week. That's what's coming up. Huge thanks, as always, to Yana Mamakiewicz, my right-hand man. Thank you, buddy, for everything that you do. Folks, you can like our Facebook page. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter uh, at thehustlepod. Yan and Andy Shaw and I are going to be recording, I believe, the next recap this weekend. So if you have some kind of lingering question or thing you want to uh, send over for us to discuss, go right ahead, okay? Anyway, we love you guys. We'll talk to you later.
Every phone on my side Every blow that is struck I'll take refuge in our love I've got nothing to hide And I wanna make it clear tonight Our love, our love I know it's true Our love will us through Our love, our love It lifts us up Our love Oh, no.